Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah, and I want to welcome you to our study of the Gospel of Matthew. We are in the midst of the study. And in fact, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. That's where our study in this episode will begin. Just to bring us up to chapter 4, the Messiah has now been introduced to some of the disciples uh, as a result of the ministry of John the Baptist. He has gone there and joined with John the Baptist. He has been baptized, um, and and he's now getting ready to depart from that place. The the big question is, why in the world was Yeshua baptized? As I pointed out to you in the previous study, the location of where John the Baptist was operating is crucial in understanding this because it's the very crossing point of when the children of Israel came out of the wilderness and crossed over into the land uh, and fulfilled God's promise to them to give them the promised land. And if you recall, the Ark of the Covenant with the priests went into the Jordan River. The river dried up, and they crossed over on dry land. Now, Yeshua goes to that same location, and he's participating with John in Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was the message, and Yeshua will be echoing that same message as you'll find out. And he said the reason why he's being baptized there was so that all righteousness would be fulfilled. And I believe that expression is talking about God's ultimate plan of redemption, that when he did the Passover and he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt on the journey to the promised land, this is the story of redemption, getting them to that place. And that here comes the Messiah, the Redeemer, and he picks up from the very point uh, that uh, Moses finished the story of redemption. And he's going to go forward with that uh, completely consistent with the plan of Moses. A lot of brethren, uh, a lot of our Christian brethren, think that what the Messiah came and did was a new thing, a completely different thing than what Moses had taught us. And I'm trying to show the link. No, he wanted to connect immediately with the last major events of Moses and the children of Israel, and he wanted to begin his ministry publicly from that point. So we've accomplished that, and now chapter 4 tells us what happens next. Then Yeshua was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Let me stop for a moment. It would not have taken me 40 days and 40 nights for me to be hungry. But um, anyways, that's what the scripture says for Yeshua, that finally at that point uh, he had done so. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and he said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, 
and on their hands they will bear you up, unless you strike your foot against a stone. And Yeshua said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Yeshua said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Now this is where um, Yeshua left the Jordan River area, and he went to a mountain called the Mount of Temptation. And if you travel to Israel, uh, you will be able to see this mountain. Uh, and it'll usually be pointed out uh, by the various guides that this is the mountain that we believe that Yeshua went to, having left the Jordan River Valley area and where, where uh, the baptism that we think took place. Um, and you will see it's a very barren place. There's no food up there whatsoever. And it's somewhat remote. It's considered to be part of the Judean wilderness um, in that region uh, for it. Now, a lot of different teaching has been done about um, what is the logic behind uh, the tempting questions from the devil and, you know, the scriptures that Yeshua quoted. And one of the principles that comes out of it is the best way to deal with spiritual battles, and let's say the devil's tempting you, which is a spiritual battle, is for you to be aware of what the Scripture says, be aware of what the Lord says, and give answer from what the Lord has said instead of you attempting to give answer. If you get into an argument with the devil, I can assure you that the devil is a little bit smarter than you and probably will trick you. But if you quote Scripture and you repeat what the Lord has said about a particular matter, uh, you'll find uh, spiritual success, essentially. And as a young man, I learned this very quickly about uh, learning Scriptures so I can give answer to questions that are posed to me, things that will come against me to try to uh, deflect me uh, from my faith. In fact, in my own personal experience, I remember the day my father, my own earthly father, challenged me on my enthusiasm for um, serving the Lord. And uh, he, he, said, he made the statement to me uh, that, um, uh, that you can't eat the Bible. You know, he was talking about, well, you got to work, you you got to have a career, you got to have, you know, how, how do you make a living? You know, and he wanted to de-emphasize my spiritual interest by saying it's not the most essential thing in the world. At which point, I quoted this same verse, and I said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And um, I remember my father kind of being stunned a little bit. And uh, other things that I had as uh, characteristics in my life, because it was being led by the Lord, that he gave me kind of the weirdest um, under-the-table compliment I ever got, and that was he said that I was disgustingly decent. And uh, it was, that was how I dealt with my own father uh, on some of these issues, quoted the same scripture. And that's a verse that comes out of Deuteronomy 8. And by the way, uh, that Deuteronomy 8 passage, it goes in, it's giving answer to 
uh, why did God permit the children of Israel to suffer thirst and to suffer hunger in the wilderness? Why didn't he just lay out the smorgasbord for them? Why did he allow them to go through those experiences? And it said, the answer is given, so that they would learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so here he is, he's hungry, just as they were, and here's the same lesson that God was trying to teach the children of Israel, the Messiah is repeating that lesson, which means the Messiah knew that lesson, he understood that lesson, and he understood the wisdom that was in that scripture. The other two temptations, uh, the second one in particular, if you are the Son of God, stop and think about that for a moment. He is the Son of God. And he knows he's the son of God. So why would he entertain a question that has a contention? Well, if you are, then this. And this is one of the very subtle ways that um, the devil will try to trick all of us. Well, if you're really a believer, you know, if, if, if you, you really know the Lord, blah, blah, blah. Um, and the, and we need to stop and we need to uh, learn very quickly in our spiritual life who are we and who do we believe in. Um, I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, the God of Israel, the Messiah, his son, whom he said, and in the teaching of the apostles. I believe in those things. Who am I? I'm one of those believers. That's who I am. Um, and coming along, someone coming along and deflecting that by saying, oh, well, you're, you're not a valuable person, you're a terrible person, you are this, you are that, uh, you don't belong, blah, 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 has nothing to do with who are you really. What a man says to you or the devil says to you is, has nothing to do with the definition of who you are. The definition of who you are is given to you by God. God created me, God made me, I answered to God, I don't answer to anyone else. And part of spiritual maturity in my uh, uh, deepest belief is that you need to find out who you are and who do you believe in. Answer those questions, and then you basically, uh, if you can answer those questions and with confidence, you are able to get through this life and this world on a whole lot of other issues. The, uh, then, it, you know, the devil hits him with this last one, which says, hey, fall down, worship me, and I will give you the world in all of its glory. Well, Yeshua immediately rejected that. Um, however, I want you to listen to that temptation. Because the Bible does tell us that there's somebody that was made that offer and has accepted the devil's offer. That person is the anti-Messiah. The anti-Messiah is scheduled to come at the end of the ages and when the world is in all of its glory. And he will come to do the works of the devil. And he will fall down and worship the devil. And so he has been given this temptation. And, and unlike the, the, the Messiah, the Son of God, who did not take him up on it, the anti-Messiah will take up the devil on his offer. And that's fundamental to why uh, we have an anti-Messiah uh, anti 
and a structure of the devil being over him and so forth because the devil has made this offer. And this man, this person, has accepted that offer uh, to do that. So let's pick it up now uh, from where he leaves. Verse 12, now when he heard that John had been taken into uh, custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and to those who were sitting in the land, the shadow of death, and upon them a light dawn. And from that time, Yeshua began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message that John the Baptist said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. That same message he carried on. And I think the reason why Yeshua departed from the area is I think that when they came out, the king came out to arrest uh, John the Baptist, he probably also came out with the intent to arrest his followers. And so I think the disciples fled. I think Yeshua left that area. And the king didn't have jurisdiction up in the Galilee area. He only had it down there in the Judean area. And so by moving out of that region, he avoided uh, a potential arrest and being caught up with John the Baptist at that time. Um, so he goes up there, and now we're going to be introduced to some additional disciples. Verse 18, and walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left the nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. And Yeshua was going all about in all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him went out into all of Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains and demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And a great multitude followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This last description of the region essentially is like everything in 360 degrees from Capernaum to the north, to the east, to the west, to the south. Uh, he's impacting the entire region of the Middle East, focused from there in Capernaum. But let me back up for a moment. Let, let me um, ask you, okay, so he's now, he finds two guys here fishing. He finds these two guys working with their dad, mending and that. He immediately says to come follow me, and they drop everything and they come follow. Does that make sense to you? I mean, is, is, is that, can you picture that? Hey, come follow me. Okay, we'll drop everything. We'll leave our jobs. Blah blah blah. We'll we'll do it. What what was what was the mechanism that draw these men to him? 
He didn't do the miracles and the teaching until after he got them. For what reason did they leave? So let me give you a little background. See, every seven years in Israel, which was referred to as the acceptable year in the ancients, Isaiah talks about this, the acceptable year. That's the sabbatical year. And on the sabbatical year, because there was no agricultural work, because they weren't supposed to be planting crops, um, there was a tremendous reduction of the workload that was up. And because this was a year of giving the land its rest. And what used to happen was that's when certain rabbis and spiritual teachers would gather up young disciples. And for that year, he would train those disciples. And at the end of the year, then they could return and go back and do things. Now, during the course of that year, this rabbi would make a decision about each of these young men that they had gathered up. And if he thought the student was truly serious about his studies and about learning about the Lord, then he would, instead of returning back to his father and to his house where he'd been, he would go on to more advanced training, become a scribe, you know, become one of the leaders and teachers. Uh, within the the religious organization that was in the land at the time. If, however, the student did not, um, shall we say, mature enough, and the teacher didn't feel like that the student was that serious or that committed, then he would instruct them to return to their father's house and learn their father's trade or skill. And this was part of the process of transitioning from young men into mature men was they would go through this each sabbatical year. Now, Yeshua's beginning his ministry, and I believe it was a sabbatical year. It was a, an acceptable year when he first began his ministry. So who does he go and he collects up these young men? He says, come follow me. You know, he they knew he was a teacher. So he's willing to take them under his wing and instruct them. This was a great honor. If a young man was asked by a teacher to come and do this, this was a, a golden opportunity for them. This could make all the difference in their life as to the direction of their life and how they proceed. And this was a highly desirable thing uh, within Israel is that you would have a teacher, uh, a master teacher, who would take you under the wing and disciple you and train you, you know, for it. And there was a lot of qualifications for it. You remember Paul uh, mentioning to us his testimony that he was a disciple of Gamaliel? Gamaliel would not even take you as a student. Um, he would take you at, thir at the age of 13. But by the age of 13, if you hadn't memorized the Torah, he wouldn't even consider you. And Paul, by saying he was a disciple of Gamaliel, we know he committed the entire Torah to memory probably a lot of the prophets as well. He knew the scripture. It was ready right there. He didn't need to have a, a scroll in front of him uh, for him to know what the Lord had instructed and what he had taught. And so Gamaliel took him under his wing and trained him up. The apostle Paul was on his way, um, you know, when the Lord confronted him 
uh, to being part of the Sanhedrin, to be part of the Jewish Supreme Court in, in the land. That's how they groomed and trained those that came into leadership in, in the land uh, of Israel. So here is Yeshua, and guess what he's doing? He's collecting these men up, and we believe that these were young men. And given this tradition of how this was done, we think that Peter wasn't over the age of 19, and all the other disciples were even younger than him. So when he first starts gathering them and teaching them, you know, they're being referred to as men because they're older than 13, 13 or older. Uh, we think the Apostle John may have only been 13. He was probably the youngest one of them. And so it's very young men that are traveling around with him, hearing his instruction to, to be a part of it. And he's trying to shape their lives from a, from a young stage to, uh, for it. So when he called out, he said, come follow me. Yeah, they would. that was exciting news. That was a, a unbelievable opportunity. And you see the father, Zebedee, he's not objecting to this. He knows this is a good thing that will happen to his sons. And so you don't hear him objecting uh, to this or complaining uh, about his sons leaving him uh, in his fishing business. Now, the idea was that they would commit for a year and to the study. And then from there, they would make a decision about whether or not they continue uh, from that point. So when people would commit to this, they were talking about during the acceptable year for the remainder of the acceptable year. So now we have a group of disciples, young men, and they're now with Yeshua, and he's ministering in that region. And people are being healed. The word's getting out. There's great testimony for it. And uh, we come to chapter 5. And it says, And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely, on account to me, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it would be salty again? It's good for nothing anymore, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I have been to the Mount of Beatitudes uh, there in Israel. It's a mountain that's uh, there on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. 
It's a beautiful shaped mountain. In other words, it's not jagged or whatever. It's sloping hills that go up to it. And one of the interesting things about it, uh, and I've been there and done this, is there's this kind of a natural swoop that goes down from it toward the Sea of Galilee. And it's a natural amphitheater. A person can stand at the edge at the top and you can have a whole bunch of people down below and they can hear your voice with no problem at all. You can project your voice as a natural amphitheater. And this is going to be a great place for teaching that Yeshua will use. And it's kind of south of Capernaum before you get to Magdala, before you get to Tiberias, and, and it's in that region uh, there where we believe that Yeshua traveled frequently and taught frequently and had a lot of activities that we'll read about here. These, um, we call them Beatitudes. We call them Be of this attitude. And, and this is probably um, some of the most powerful, what shall we say, positive teaching that the Messiah gave to us. He spoke to us of how kindness and the softness of the heart uh, were the best ways to go. To He wasn't talking about standing up for, for all kinds of things and being in conflict. Instead, he's talking about the, the humble approach to problems and the humble approach toward one another, to be loving and careful and full of mercy you know, for people uh, and gentle. And as a result, in a, in a small capsule here of this teaching, if you want to know what's the first lesson that Yeshua is teaching to his disciples, he's basically saying, be nice, be kind, be gentle. Um, you know, uh, help help with problems. Don't don't aggravate problems. Don't make them worse. Be be the instrument that helps with different situations for it. But he also recognized that there was going to be conflict they would be facing, and so he he uh, coaches them. And what's your attitude should be when people come against you? He said they've done the same thing with anybody else who served the Lord. It comes with the turf, comes with the job, and he said, but your reward will be very great. Just hang in there and, and be the servant of God and do the right thing. And it's good that every once in a while we stop and in the midst of all the stuff going on in our life, go back and say, well, what's the original instruction from the Messiah? Um, especially when you have conflicts with family members, with brethren, with other people. So it's good to go back and say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Be a peacemaker. You know, not one of the principles in the conflict. Be, be the person that steps up and tries to find a way to resolve something. Be merciful to other people. God will show you mercy. Forgive other people, so God will forgive you. Um, the people who like to make accusations, the people who like to be in conflict, they're really not paying very close attention to who they are and all the things that God has already done for them. Nor are they looking forward to the good things that will God do for them. They've, they've risen themselves up and they, and they want to be in conflict with other brethren. 
and accusers of brethren is really part of the work of the devil. That's not the teaching of the Messiah. Um, in fact, the Messiah said, I didn't come to judge. I came to, you know, to, to minister to you and, and build you up and edify you. So that's a central teaching. It's a very uh, famous passage um, that is given to us here in Matthew chapter 5. All right, we're going to come now to one of the most powerful parts of Matthew chapter 5, and that has to do with Yeshua is going to weigh in on the subject of how does he feel about the Torah? How does he feel about the law and the prophets? Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So this is a place where I like the King James translation actually better than my New American Standard, because the phrase, uh, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away, really should say, not a jot or a tittle will pass away. Jots and tittles are not something well understood. They are scribal marks in the Hebrew Scriptures. And they're not translated into English. But they do exist, and they do have teachings that go with them. And what he literally was saying was that what Moses wrote and what the prophets wrote, and including what the scribes have done in copying it, installing the scribal marks, even that will be remaining until uh, everything is accomplished. So he was talking about the whole work, the whole work product of the scribes from the original author all the way through the work of the scribes to make copies uh, for us is what he's referring to. Now, the great controversy of verse 17 is that we have a lot of um, a lot of Christian brethren that say that the word fulfill there, but to fulfill, brings it to a completion. Uh, that that word means, well, we filled it up, so we're done, and uh, there is no more. When in truth and fact, the context of the sentence itself says, do not think that I, that I did not come to abolish. So there in no way, shape, or form can the word fulfill be even similar to the word abolish. Now, you can take the word abolish and you can get out your thesaurus, go through all the alternate uh, words that you could be completing that. You could get the word fulfill and fill out all of the possible things there. And any time you think they are similar... The context of this sentence is saying, no, they are different from each other. And so any teacher who tries to say the word fulfill means anything similar to the a word abolish, such as ending, annulling, uh, rendering it over and done with, it's done away with, any of that kind of thinking is an absolute, are you ready for this? Abuse of the English language. You can get any English teacher you want to come down there and say the word fulfill cannot mean the same thing as the word abolish. The context of this sentence is very clear. That's a contrasting statement, not a similar statement. So this idea, well, Yeshua came and he fulfilled and that, and he did away with the temple service, did away with sacrifices, did away with the priesthood, because he's fulfilled all of that. 
That is completely, well, in fact, let me use the English term for it, it does violence to the Scripture. That's, that's the way a theologian would say it. Now, in other words, you are doing something that is absolutely heretical you know, and absolutely false. And that, therefore, <clears throat> we need a new definition for the word fulfill, because the one I always heard was it's completed, it's over, and done with. So what does fulfill really mean? The best example that I can give to you is that we have this, for example, in the law, um, we have this uh, ceremony. We have this memorial called Passover. And we sit down and remember the ancients and those that came out of, um, um, out of um, Egypt. And they do this memorial. And there's a lot of details in the custom of it. There's these cups that they use. We tell the basic story to our children, our sons, about God said, I will bring you out, you know, I will deliver you, uh, I'll redeem you, I'll, I'll take you to be my people. And we, we have this Passover ceremony. We remember as we were instructed to do it. Now, when Yeshua shows up and he keeps the Passover with the disciples, all of a sudden he fills up the meaning of that Passover memorial to a whole nother level. It turns out that cup was really about the blood of the Lamb. It turns out that bread that's broken was really about the body of the Messiah that would be broken for us. It turns out that bread that we put in a linen cloth and we bury with a pillow that we call the stone was really the, the fore picture of the Messiah being buried and being raised from the grave. It was He filled it up full of way more meaning. And that's just one stunning example of how he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. In fact, the study of the Messiah is a study of all the things that he did and all the teachings that he gave that was rooted in the original teaching of Moses and the prophets and how he brought them to fullness and brought them to a much greater um, understanding of, of that for it. Um, so let's now look at verse 19, the, the verses that follow that. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Two incredible statements here, and Yeshua is doing as a continuation of, don't even think that I came to do away with the law and the prophets. He specifically addresses, if someone comes and is teaching about something that's in the law, and he takes the least of the commandments and renders them null and of none effect. That man is going to be least in the kingdom. He may make it in the kingdom because he's a believer, but he is not going to have the reward that he thinks he's going to have because the Scripture talks about those who teach the Word of God, they receive a, a, a reward. He says they are not going to get a reward uh, for the teaching because they've taught in error. 
And he specifically refers to the least of these commandments. So let's pose the question. Most of us know what the greatest commandment is. We know what the Ten Commandments are. How many of us know what the least commandment of the law is? And by the way, there is one. It comes from Deuteronomy 22 and verse 6. And it has to do with the commandment of a bird's nest. How you can have the eggs uh, from a bird's nest, but you can't harm the mother. And you must show kindness. In fact, Deuteronomy 22 is all about the commandments of showing kindness. You must show kindness in all situations. And that's considered to be the least of the commandment. The greatest one is to love. The least of it is to be kind. Now, that's completely consistent with what was the teaching that Yeshua was giving at the first part of chapter 5. Blessed is he who's merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In other words, be kind. And so he's making reference to, in the law, the, the commandment about kindness, the least of the commandments. And he's saying, if you even annul that one, uh, you will be least in the kingdom of heaven. I should always also remind everybody the kingdom of heaven is not horizontal. We're not all equal in the kingdom. It's vertical. There are some who are great. There are some who are least. Um, and the measure that God uses for determining who is great and who is least is who who obeyed the Lord, who who understood what the Lord taught and implemented that. It doesn't mean that you, you were more religious than the other guy. It means did you really understand what the Lord talked about and did you do what the Lord said? Wow. His scaling system for who's great in the kingdom and who's least in the kingdom is not based on religious appearance. From that, we should be able to take the counsel that I think we're going to be shocked when we get to the kingdom that those that we thought were lowly are much higher in the Lord's eyes than we realized, and those that were high and mighty are much lower in the Lord's eyes. Uh, and I think it's going to be a little bit of a shock. There's going to be kind of a, uh, a role reversal, I think, when we finally get to the kingdom. And it certainly is what he's referring to amongst the brethren in that day. These young men, if they saw a scribe or the Pharisee, they would defer to them and give honor to them immediately. But Yeshua is specifically saying to about them that they uh, aren't necessarily doing what the Lord has said. And he who is the giver of the law and uh, the the Messiah, I think he probably is in the know. I think he probably knows what's in the hearts of people um, uh, with regard to those that are teaching others and what their motivation is and whether or not they really believe this stuff or not. Uh, verse 21, you have heard the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry and his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First to be reconciled to your brother, 
then come and present your offering. Before I go any further in this, what is Yeshua doing at this point? Is he teaching the law brand new? No. He's teaching the law that the scribes and the Pharisees have taught, and he's explaining the air they have taught. When he just got through making the statement, unless your righteousness exceeds that of scribes and Pharisees, you'll not see the kingdom of heaven. So he's now going through the teaching. He said, you have heard these people teach the following commandment. Let's talk about what the commandment really is. And he's basically, he takes off and he said, you shall not murder. You know what the scribes and the Pharisees used to think? And they taught. Well, you can go ahead and hate the guy passionately. You just can't go out there and take the club and beat him to death. And Yeshua stood up and said, no, if you hate the guy from your heart, you're guilty of murder whether you go hit him or not. Because we all know that if you believe such things of a man, you'll do a whole manner of other things with your mouth, with your behavior, that is even sometimes even worse than taking a club to the guy. You know, because of hatred, because there, there's no love in your heart. I have taught repeatedly, and I'm sure many of you remember this, that we obey from the heart and we disobey from the heart. Um, which commandment is the first commandment that we always break before we sin against God? We don't believe in him. Which is the commandment that we always break before we sin against a man? We covet something. We want something. It begins with the heart. And then it gets carried out. And that's what Yeshua comes teaching. He is actually teaching Torah correctly. He's actually saying all of those sins originate from the heart. Now, if you can get the heart to not hate, then you're not going to be guilty of murder. But if you say all manner of evil against your brother, even though you don't strike him down and take his mortal life from him, you're still guilty of killing him and trying to kill him. You're still guilty of those things because you're you, from the heart you're doing harm uh, to him. We need to be very careful about how we treat one another. And in particular, what do you believe of another person? If you are really have hate in your in your heart, you are guilty of a whole host of sins, whether you actually go carry it out or not. Before the Lord, he knows what's in your heart. He knows the blackness and the sin that is in there. And so that's Messiah teaching that. Now, I'm going to continue the teaching of the Messiah teaching the law here. And we're going to look at some other examples in our next episode. But suffice it to say, Yeshua is now teaching Torah correctly to his disciples. And it's in great contrast with where the Pharisees and the scribes were in that day. So shalom to all of you for our study in, in Matthew, and I'll look forward to being with you in the next episode. Shalom. Thank you.